part of the fun of really good noir films is that you get hypnotized. They force you to experience the inability to understand what's happening. And yet, they don't alienate you because they're sexy. You get into actually like an aesthetic pleasure of listening to language and watching people and seeing clothes. But then slowly what they do is remind you, you don't know what's going on. And in this country, no matter what anybody tells you, there's dark shit going on. And not knowing that it's going on puts you in danger. The manipulation that's taking place that's really dangerous is not a manipulation to get us to buy anything. It's the manipulation literally of how we feel about each other. This concerted effort to foment antagonism within our society to cause chaos and social unrest here. Like this is like out of a James Bond movie. Like the only agenda is not to sell us anything. It's literally to just destabilize us into rage into like this fit of such like anger with each other that we can't function and it's working. That's Edward Norton this week on the Retrol podcast. The Rich Roll podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the show, Edward Norton. Edward Norton, people, you heard me right, Edward Norton, arguably one of the great all-time actors on the podcast today. Are you kidding me? I don't really have to introduce this guy, do I? Three Academy Award nominations, Primal Fear, American History X, Birdman, how about Fight Club, a slew of Wes Anderson movies. The list is long uh, and incredibly impressive. As you may know, uh, Edward has a new movie out. It's really a terrific 50s crime noir about a Tourettec gumshoe. It's called Motherless Brooklyn. It's a long gestating project that Edward wrote, directed, and stars in that took decades to make. It's an incredible achievement, and all of you guys should go out and see it immediately in the theater. What people might not know about Edward, however, in part, I think, because he's somebody who works hard to protect his privacy and doesn't generally do a ton of press, are the many impressive and impactful things that he does and has done outside of Hollywood as an entrepreneur, an investor, a philanthropist, uh, and an environmentalist. Along with his wife, he co-founded CrowdRise, a crowdfunding platform which has raised over $500 million for nonprofits, uh, which he later sold to GoFundMe. He is also the co-founder of an advanced data science company called EDO, which provides audience analytics to media companies. And you might recall that Edward ran the New York City Marathon in 2009 in something like 328, if I'm not mistaken, which is very good, uh, alongside a group of Maasai. Well, he did that in conjunction with his role as the founding board president of the Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust, a Kenyan conservation and community development organization. And honestly, all of that is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this amazing and hyper-intelligent human. And it's all coming up in a couple few, but before we dig in, let's do a little housekeeping by supporting the great organizations that make the show possible. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast dating back to its beginnings. 
and in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. So I met Edward through some mutual friends about a year ago. It was very brief. Uh, it was a party. And we had a nice exchange, but that was it. And although Edward is somebody that I definitely would put at the very top of the list of people I would love to have on the show, at that time, it, it honestly never occurred to me to even ask if he would do it. First, because it would just be awkward, I just met him. Uh, and also predominantly because I know the guy rarely does press and is so intentional about protecting his private life. But with this new movie, Motherless Brooklyn, suddenly I noticed that he was popping up on a ton of podcasts. First on Mark Maron, which was really great, by the way. Uh, then Rogan, Ezra Klein, Tim Ferriss, Preet Bahara, Dak Shepard, uh, Alec Baldwin's show. They're all great. I listen to all of them. Uh, and if you're a fan of Edward, I suggest you do the same, particularly because this conversation is fairly qualitatively a little bit different from those. And basically secondarily, just because uh, listening to Edward talk about all manner of subjects is a fascinating exercise. Anyway, and this is very LA, I realize, so apologies. But uh, my wife and I were out trick-or-treating with our kids the other night. And I ran into Edward with our mutual friend and this friend suggested that Edward do the show. And to my absolute delight, Edward was into it, which was amazing. And the next day it happened and here we are. I would say that this one goes in a whole bunch of different directions, uh, our social media and marketing driven culture. We discuss the current political climate, the state of environmental activism, we talk about the role of ego in Edward's life and work, uh, distancing himself from the noise, the importance of gestation and living a creative life and trying to find balance in all of it and how his deep interest in the nature and seat of power underscores this latest work. Uh, Motherless Brooklyn is now in theater. So if you enjoy this conversation, if you wanna support Edward, and you dig smart, mature, grown up and entertaining cinema, please make a point of checking out the movie in the theater. 
This is definitely a pinch me moment. It was a real honor to talk to somebody I deeply admired and respected from afar for many years. So let's do it. This is good. This is an excellent book for me today. You should read that. I've not read that one. Ego is the enemy. I think you've got it in check. Mm. It is, it is this, yeah, we can talk about that. My sense is that your your ego is, is pretty well in check with all this kind of nonsense. And we were just talking a minute ago about trying to mute out the extrinsic noise that accompanies, you know, doing what you do. Yeah, I think it's, I think ego's probably like, like the deepest addiction there is though. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, I think like, the fact that even the Dalai Lama is like still vying with it. <laughs> right. I, I'm, I'm not even joking. Well, there's, I, I there's aspects that, of it that, that are necessary to being an actualized human, I think. It's about harnessing, you know, the power that it has and keeping, you know, its ill effects, you know, in check. Yeah, it's all, I mean, also it, it's a word with a lot of lateral definition in yeah. it. So it, it, it depends on what part of it, you know, which version of ego you're talking about in some ways, like, um, because I, I guess, I guess even altruism, even even the impulse to do good. Well, you have to believe that you have or, capabilities and capacity. I mean, right. for yourself, you can't. I mean, look, this movie that we're going to talk about. You 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 wrote it, you directed it, you star in it. It takes a certain audaciousness to say I can handle this, and with that comes you know an aspect of ego that is necessary and and, and crucial to like getting the job done. You yeah. have to make everyone else believe that you have that capability. Right. As well. That's that. Yeah. What you're what you're saying. I agree that. Um, like, if you don't have belief in your own agency, like if you don't have if you don't have belief that you have capacity, uh, you know, you. I I actually I actually by the way, this is a digression, but it's, I think it's an interesting one. I think a lot of people at their lowest like depression, the, the depression and anxiety that a lot of people feel in the modern world and a lot of what flows from it, even in terms of like the socio-political mm -hmm. expressions, things that go on like Brexit right now, which you could say is like, let's even forget America. I think Brexit right now is one of the most fascinating examples of an enormous collective unforced error, right? Self-harm that there was no reason to have inflicted and uh and i think you could argue that that sometimes these things happen when people reach a, a lack of faith that they have any agency mm -hmm. that they matter that they when they feel marginalized to the degree that even the act of self-harm they know it on an intuitive level they know they're doing themselves damage but the ability to do anything that do causes anything. anything to happen is is eluding them in so many other areas of their life that they do something sort of openly self-destructive because at least they did it. Yeah, the level of disenfranchisement has to rise to a certain threshold level. And once it tips over that, there's a vibration, a collective, you know, uh, there's a collective ability to like tap into a certain vibration to take an action even with the understanding that it's not in their own interest. Yeah. And you see that played out time and time again. I mean, we're seeing it here. Yeah. Well. I, and the funny thing is, is I, someone was, um, 
someone was equating it to like nihil. That's what nihilism is. It's it's the belief that destruction has its own end or whatever, right? I don't think that. I think that's I, different. I just I agree. That's yeah. what I mean. I'm saying, and I I was kind of wincing. I was like, mm, that's not really what I see going on. I I like I think. Um, I saw a, a movie recently that I thought was actually nihilistic, that actually was like um, a celebration of the idea that there's a a righteous, heroic, uh, there's, a, there's a heroic value to, to blowing away your oppressors, you know, or, or to, to destroying, you know. Um, yeah. Which, what movie was that? I'm not, you don't I don't want to say. I don't want to say, but it disturbed me. <laughs> uh-huh. It it it's it scared me. Um, but the but but I but I don't think what people are doing in America or in in um, England is is nihilism. I think is is a it's deep like desperation and like you said, sense of loss of control, loss of um, you know, marginalization, etc. And I think. That that's when like, that's when you see the downside of of ego not having a healthy empowerment, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think to your point, like um, like there is a part of ego that people need a healthy baseline of it to be able to act in healthy ways. Yeah, um, but I think it's so. It's never been. Easy. Well, first of all, to your first point, uh, I think that whole thing is exacerbated when we have vested interests who who benefit from fomenting this sense of chaos that we're seeing, and media gets weaponized to people who are you know ill suited to um, you know find the signal and the noise and act accordingly. And it, it, you know, I think we're seeing that in in ways that are unprecedented in human history and it's deeply gravely concerning yeah the amplification intensification of of uh noise is uh, the speed with which it's happened yeah. i mean because i you know we're about the same age um i think i kind of think gen x is the is the vanguard generation in terms of like we're the first cradle we're the first television informed generation right and and you could argue that even though it's at it it's at one one hundredth of the speed of what's happening today mm-hmm. we still we had the we had the inbound global information as a part of our total experience right we've never not had a sense of the world we even when i was a kid I could see the helicopters taking people off the roof in Vietnam, right? right? Like I remember that, my dad was a vet. And so I I remember his intensity about it, but I remember the image. I actually remember seeing dislocation, disruption, being scared of like the son of Sam murders, even though yeah. like, you know, there was a whole lot of stresses coming in remember on us. Remember that movie, The Day After? Yeah, oh, I was just talking yeah. about this with someone the other day. It's like. How old? You know, we were like twelve. I was terrified by that. Terrified, movie. absolutely terrified. Yeah. Like, you know, and and here, and point being, whatever it was that we, you know, had to deal with, the the um, it's incomparable. It's it, it's almost unmeasurable the 
the turbocharging of the stresses yeah. from information overload and distortion through that information mm -hmm. now. And it's, uh, it's, it's wild, it's really wild. And we're also the, the, we're the last generation to be raised without the internet. So we have the TV, you know, we have that, that, that sort of filtering ability that came with growing up with television, but also we know what it's like to, you know, be educated without the level of information, the influx of, of noise that young people see today. And I can't, I can't even wrap my head around what that must be like and the downstream impact of that on the next generation and the generation mm -hmm. after that 10, 20 years from now. Yeah, it does. Um, it's really weird too, because <clears throat> like I think um, for all the flack he gets over the single moment that he played a negative role in some people's mind in the 2000 election, I think that, I think that Ralph Nader, for me, really articulated almost as a philosopher better than anybody, earlier than anybody, that we have a, we have a core conundrum of corporate interest versus human interest, that this is basal to like everything now. It's basal to our healthcare problems. It's basal to our environmental problems. That that if we don't, if we can't separate uh, those two things and prioritize human interest over corporate interest, we have some really, really serious uh, problems metastasizing out of that. But what's weird to me is in what you just observed, the, so I used to think to myself like, wow, man, you can really see the degree to which we're being turned into corporate copper tops, corporate consumers, like we're being fed entertainment that's really just sort of a, a burger and a Xanax mm -hmm. blended together and, and all they're really doing is priming us to buy shit. Right. And there's art leaking through and this and that, but that matrix of corporate, corporate matrix of ultimately getting you to be a consumer, it was intense. But now what's really wild is yes, notionally, Notionally, it's it's still about selling us stuff, right? Facebook, Instagram, their whole business model is as an ad platform. So it's indisputable that they're, but this weird thing has happened, which is because they're in the business of selling ads, what it's now turned into is something that does not have, it is not being driven. The manipulation that's taking place that's really dangerous is not a manipulation to get us to buy anything it's the manipulation literally of how we feel about each other. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And the Russian GRU and this concerted effort to foment antagonism within our society to cause chaos and and social unrest here. Like this is out of like out of a James Bond movie, yeah. like Spectre. Like the only agenda is not to sell us anything. It's literally to just destabilize us into rage, into like this fit of of such like anger with each other that that we can't function right. and it's working. And then we become malleable and controllable. Yeah, or at least unable to organize against mm -hmm. it. And you think about like these things this week, the, this kind of outrageously horrific showing by, you know, Mark Zuckerberg as people say to him, do you care at all? about the dissemination of untruth in this thing you've built. And he cannot summon himself to say I no. Know. I know. Um, it, it, is, it is like, 
you, you literally like, I just look at like, like in college when you study like Nietzsche and will to power and you like content yourself as a 20 year old that you get what it means, but literally you get to our age and suddenly you see these moments and you go, no, that's actually it right there. That is just pure will to power. Exactly as he expressed it, it is like, it is like the drive that has no end that says the ultimate of the ultimate objective is my maximization, period. What's so interesting about that, I mean, we have Jack Dorsey basically coming out and saying, we're no longer gonna do political ads, and he's kind of being championed for that right now, which, tees, which tees up Zuckerberg to follow suit, which he refuses to do. And when you look at the 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 spreadsheet here, the revenue coming from political ads is so de minimis compared to the rest of the ad revenue that 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 Facebook reaps in annually. So what is what is this, you know, this this like battleground that he's staking his claim it's on? It's will here? to power. It's crazy. It's it's like how much is enough? And then you say, well, for us or a normal, you know, kind of uh grounded person. Um, we wouldn't be in that position because we don't have that same will to power. Or is it that in the making of that person, you're cre that's being created as you ascend? Like, does that happen to somebody or is it that kind of person that that ascends in that way? Hard to know. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting chicken and the egg question. Yeah. I think um, what what's, uh, yeah, it's wild. Um, Especially, you know, I call it sometimes like uh, it's like the Hosni Mubarak moment, right? In the sense that when you look at, like, if you just take Mubarak, right? Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting moment in contemporary history of of the way history can, you know, self-correct or roll and how do you move within it. The, I'm saying that belly. To me, Mubarak is this fascinating contemporary example of the inability to perceive the opportunity of the moment because of the habit right. ingrained in him of seeing himself a certain way. Right? This is a guy who, like most credible assessments, are that he and his family took something like thirty to fifty billion out of that country mm -hmm. over time, and. And he had the support of the U.S., the U.S. intelligence community as a bulk work against originally, you know, communism and then against, uh, you know, Islamism, Islamic fundamentalism. But you get to this Tahir Square moment, right? And he has his George Washington opportunity. He has the moment that George Washington is now right. rightly legendary for, which is he said, at the right moment, George Washington said, no, I am not, it, 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 if it works, it has to work without me, right? He let the Republic be more important than him. And so he's forevermore, essentially a, a humanist political saint, right? Mubarak had this moment where if he had looked around him and looked at his children and looked at his grandchildren, he could have said, we can live, we can live like kings for the next 10 generations in comfort in Switzerland and lionized by our own people. If I simply go out on that balcony and say, read the tea leaves and go in this moment, you know, 
what we've done in Egypt in the modern era to build a strong secular state, it involved things that many people think were suppressive, that were tough. It was a tough time. We did what we thought we had to do. But now the clarion call of people saying it's time for the next phase is loud and it's clear. And I am not going to be the person who stands in the way of it. Everything I did was to set us up for this moment. And I celebrate the call of the people to say, we need to express ourselves in this way. There would be statues of him yeah. in Egypt for all eternity, no matter who, literally. He just couldn't do it. it, it you it, can it, see it so yeah. clearly. He could have put the Muslim Brotherhood mm -hmm. on tilt, literally on tilt, on their heels, unable to say, what can we say about that? Nothing. It's it's unassailable. It's And, and they'd have to essentially say, go off into the sunset, enjoy your life. And instead, he's in the docket. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's, it's not dissimilar from the con being confounded as to why certain Republican leaders won't bring, break ranks with Trump. Exactly. It's sort of like, if you could just summon the gumption to stand against what is happening right now, you would be celebrated and lionized for that. Yeah. But, you know, look, also I Also to your point about it being a rounding error, political ads, it's like, can you not see, can you not look at this in a wide lens and project even into the medium term future and see what a negative this is for you to take a stand mm -hmm. around something that is literally atomizing the very fabric of the democratic capitalist society that allowed you to build this company in this way and just like see how much of an opportunity is here for you to do what Dorsey did and essentially right. say, and by the way, like, who, you know, I think Jack's a pretty conscious guy, like I actually yeah. do. And I think it's, but, but it's also just tactically wise. It's just wise. Yeah. It's like, you don't want to be on the wrong side of of the tension between humanist progressivism right. and- What the historical record is gonna show about this. Corp, I mean, yeah, you it, know, Jack's an interesting case because um, I too think he's a very conscious guy. And he did the podcast, I went to his house. I spent like the better part of a whole afternoon with him. and. And you know, I just got the impression that this is somebody who is grappling with very difficult issues with you know impossible solutions. He's got the world chomping at his feet to solve them. And in order to do the best that he possibly can, he has to erect these boundaries over his, his, um, his quietude, essentially his serenity so that he can problem solve like, with his highest consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I just thought like, that's the kind of person that I want in that role. And then you see the dialogue around him because he is just the target for everybody's, you know, uh, issues and, and angst over, you know, the, the, the disease that is endemic in Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, but who would you rather have in that position? Yeah, yeah, as long, you know, look, I mean, I know because I was involved in starting a crowdfunding company right. for charity, I got to know people in that space and the pioneers of that space were the guys in Kickstarter, right? Um, uh -huh. uh, Perry Chen, who I never knew, but Yancey Strickler, I got to know a little bit. And Yancey's just put a, a book out um, uh, called This Could Be Our Future, I think. And he talks about the decision they made really early on to turn that into a, a, a benefit, corp mm -hmm. a public benefit corporation. And I think, but the book at large, it's really excellent. It, it posits this idea that basically the idea of financial maximization being 
our only value on personal levels, on corporate levels, is is an is a pernicious underlying um, component on mm-hmm. all this bad decision making and social ill and all of it, and that and that it's a, a variation on what Mark Benioff said recently about stakeholder values versus shareholder values. He Yancey sort of says it's like a Japanese bento box. There needs to be there needs to be apportionment of the values you're pursuing. Yeah. Not just financial maximization. And I think when you see, you know, it, it is going to take people saying, is, is is what I'm all about the biggest, the biggest version of the thing I've built? Or is it that I want the legacy of the thing I've built to be positive, that big, big enough, uh-huh. um, that it doesn't have to be driven by like, is... Is it growing, devouring? Is it like Shiva, the 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 devourer of right. worlds, or is it, or is it like, you know, um, something that's going to actually give back? It's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult puzzle, you know, especially in a in a capitalistic system that that lives and dies on quarterly profits and you know, uh, you know, shareholder say and what's happening. It creates a system that that foments you know growth as the only metric yeah until you know we're eating our own and we're at cross purposes with what you the the vision was to begin with and you know when i when i when i kind of can when i take a ten thousand foot look on what's happening culturally it's it's difficult to not cast a dystopian view or or be pessimistic about the future you know and i talk to lots of interesting people who provide me with a tremendous amount of optimism but i find myself you know, lapsing into, you know, kind of a dark place with the whole thing. Yeah. The, the thing that kind of buffers me about that, which I agree when I look at, I spend a lot of, I've spent years and years and years working on environmental issues, Mm -hmm. conservation issues and sustainable development issues and things like that. And, um, I'm certainly not like a global expert, but I don't know nothing about, you know, I've spent enough right. time on it doing something. And sometimes I, I, I think, you know, my dad's a career environmental conservation uh-huh. uh, litigator and organization builder. And um, you go, there's not one single signal that's not moving radically in the wrong direction. Like not one, you know, um, every issue of like ecological health on this planet is moving significantly in the wrong direction if for 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 stability in terms of like the biosphere that literally supported our evolution and our ascendance um not that the planet won't survive and it's not that we won't survive in some measure but we're going to be like going through cataclysmic shifts and you kind of go wow man it's just inevitable like if not our kids our our grandkids our great-grandkids it's like what is the condition of the world they're going to live in going to be? It seems really bleak on so, in some way. But, but on the other hand, the other thing that's true is that within two generations, there are, there are evolutions, technological and ideas, all these things that are so profound mm-hmm. that the notion that our grandparents, our, our grandparents could no more have imagined information technology in, it has gone beyond any 
of the science fiction. I mean, some of the most, most, most prescient thinking in science fiction has sort of imagined aspects yeah. of what we're going through. But what that means is we have to have the humility to know that we also just cannot possibly, the dystopian vision that we imagine. Well, it's based on our current understanding that's right. of what's possible. Exactly. Yeah. So we just don't know. We, mm -hmm. just, we just don't know. But it's within the not knowing that um, I look at it. It's sort of what some people say about, I, I heard like a, a priest one time say like, you know, Christianity is the bet you can't lose. Like if faith is the bet you can't lose, because if you, if you act on the basis of it and it turns out to be true that there's a heaven and a hell, then you want, if you didn't, then all you, then you were nicer in life to right. people. And, um, and I kind of think the same about the environment. It's like, it's like you, we could be, we could be wrong. Um, and, and there could be a, a, turn here where we realize that we know how to plant two, two trillion trees a year yeah. and that we're able to like actually reverse these effects much faster than we thought we were, et cetera, or we'll be wrong, but at least we won't have like, we won't have to like say to our grandkids, like, what did you do during the yeah, war? I, mean, I, I drove a friggin' Hummer, you know what yeah, I mean? Essentially the argument is even, let's presume that all climate science is wrong. Um, but if we go ahead and, and stop overfishing uh, the oceans and we remove the plastic out of it and we get, you know, get better at everything, we, we start farming with regenerative principles, we, you know, all these things that we can do, these are all to our benefit, irrespective. Let, let's say they don't impact uh, greenhouse gases emissions at all. Like they're still solid practices that we should be doing. Yeah, and also actually not to, not to yeah. flip it on its head, but there's incredible economies within this great, you know, if we care about growth, if we're interested in enterprise, there's unbelievably exciting future enterprises that will crush extractive carbon intensive yeah. technologies in the marketplace. Like, I mean, that's, that's the thing It's like, it's kind of happening despite all the embedded subsidies around carbon Mm -hmm. energy and everything there's there's um it's still actually crushing it on a price point basis renewables are going to destroy carbon uh it's already done it to coal yeah but but renewables are going to utterly destroy uh carbon-based energy in the marketplace i just wish we could get there a little faster yeah you know Well, your interest in, in environmentalism comes from your dad, who by all accounts sounds like, you know, he's quite an amazing guy. He is, he's a badass. Yeah, and you grew up in, you grew up in Columbia, Maryland. Mm -hmm. I'm from Bethesda. Oh, really? So, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, grew up, uh, you know, not too far away. And what's, it's interesting, because I think, you know, people listening probably don't know, but like Columbia was this planned community and it was developed by your grandfather, right? Yeah. So this interest in urban planning, which spills into the, the movie, which we're gonna talk about in a little bit here, um, is kind of this beautiful way for you to express, you know, kind of these ideas that you grew up with. Yeah, and it's sometimes Columbia gets called the, the first planned city. Uh -huh. Which arguably it is because it's now a city of I think like 120, 130,000. Um, it's not. It, I mean, I remember hearing about it as a kid, and it yeah. was like this. Oh, it's planned, and it's like you know, this is like this like light dusting of utopia around it. It, it was a significant <laughs> dusting of utopia. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we were. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, 
you know, it, it, it wasn't like Margaret Atwood uh-huh. uh, level cultish, but it was, but it was, um, it was a, it was a real, yeah, they'd had a halo of, of sixties, um, deep progressivism around it. It was, uh, it was for my grandfather, an outgrowth of things he had become convinced of, but also mm-hmm. he, you know, he was hugely inspired by, by Martin Luther King and, and the can and John Kennedy and mm-hmm. Robert Kennedy and Columbia was founded in 67, but it was very much a part of his conviction that, that, um, the spiritual life of America was going to get corroded by, by the, um, the dissolution of the vitality of cities, which to him meant the dissolution of community. Yeah. And that, and that highways, he was a very early, um, he, he, he articulated and predicted as early as the mid fifties when he was on Eisenhower's housing commission, he, he discussed the idea that the, that the American highway system was going to promote low density development and that that was going to create sprawl. He, and I believe he was a very early, like uh, he was one of the early people to start using the phrase sprawl mm. and predicting suburban sprawl in quotes, you know, and, um, and, and he, and talk about, and he talked about the ways that cities, that city centers were going to become, were going to get denuded, you know, if people yeah. left them for these suburbs and that these suburbs were not going to be communities that it, they were seeing this by the fifties already, even with Levittown and things like that, they were seeing that the highway was promoting a kind of development that had no center, right? right? It was like, it was, it was this thing. And he, he was very concerned about that. He, he thought that, um, you know, if, if middle-class and upper middle-class life left the cities, you'd be left with essentially what we got, which was like Mm. the hyper rich and the hyper poor. It's incredibly prescient. I mean, that's exactly what's played out. And here we are in, you know, living in the, the greatest example of that. And, you know, I don't know what your experience is like living here, but I find it to be very alienating and it can be extremely lonely. Like when I moved here, it took me years to like cultivate friendships and mm. some kind of web of community. Whereas I'd always lived in cities, I lived in New York, and it's like, mm. you're just in the flow of life and there's a connectivity there that doesn't exist here without an extreme amount of effort. No, and I've lived in New York since the week I moved out of college. I've, I've been there 28 years. Um, I'm a, I'm an occasional emigre uh-huh. to LA, but I, I love, um, I so love still, New York. You're, you still consider your main yeah. place of Yeah, I've, I've been a New York yeah. resident since the summer of 91. But, um, but you know, my grandfather, I grew up around my grandfather talking about these things and, uh, it, yeah, it had a bit, I, and I worked for him my first mm-hmm. job out of college. I worked for right. his amazing organization called Enterprise, uh, now called Enterprise Community Partners, which was pioneering ways of, of creating, of, of developing affordable housing, getting mm-hmm investment equity into affordable housing development by really smartly doing it in a nonprofit matrix by training community-based advocacy group to be nonprofit housing developers and managers and then getting some equity from the city but then then leveraging some through the low income housing tax credit which he was he was one of the you know intellectual fathers of this amazing program which 
in our world now with all the talk about impact investing, right? I always say like one of the earliest and biggest and most successful impact investment products in the history of America was the low income housing tax credit because yeah. it, it gave an incentive to invest in um, affordable housing development that paid off very handsomely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so enterprise alone has raised and invested something like 16 billion now wow. um, through the syndication uh-huh. of the tax credits and through its programs, something like 10,000 community-based organization partners all over America, you know, like a million units of housing. It's it's truly an astonishing yeah, thing that, amazing. that he built. Um, I read an analysis by the Ford Foundation once that like, that one in every 120 families in America has lived in a unit of housing created by that organization. That's that's quite a legacy. Yeah, and um, and and, uh, and in in direct you know contraposition to the Alec Baldwin character. Yeah. in the movie, right? Who's basically the the complete opposite of this. Yeah, he's in the uh, yeah. So in in my film, which takes place in the fifties, Alec Baldwin plays um, a character who. He's not based on Robert Moses. That mm. that would be incorrect because this is a fiction and there's lots of things that happen in it from murders to all kinds of dark psychosexual secrets that have nothing to do with Robert Moses. They're completely my invention. But, but Moses is indisputably one of the great dark figures in American life. And, and he is to me... Um, yeah, he. If my granddad is Obi Wan, was Obi Wan Kenobi, the Jedi, you know, who held with the Force. Uh-huh. Uh, Robert Moses is like the Jedi who went dark. He's yeah, because like he started out as a progressive. Yeah, right? he did. He absolutely yeah. was Anakin Skywalker. He, he, he was considered by many to in that to be like the greatest, the the bright light of the modern urban progressive reform, civil service reform movement. And he went so dark. He he. It, it, it what was like his being, Vader I'm, moment then? I'm not what some, t- I'm not some crazy um, Star Wars fan. I, I love it. But really in an archetypal sense, right. to say that Robert Moses was the Darth Vader of New York in the 20th century is a completely accurate analogy. It's Because it, he really was a Jedi Knight who went dark um, and was so powerful, so had, un- controlled the force. For decades. For decades, arguably, he ran New York City and state you couldn't do anything without his say so from the mid thirties to at least 1968. Yeah. Um, so for half of a century, really, he he you, you know for the better for the better part of the middle of the, the century, he controlled New York like an autocratic um, emperor, and and yet and yet he was masked. He had the a, like the Death Star. He had a literally a cloaking. Uh, his genius allowed him to cloak. Well, everyone thought he was the parks commissioner, um, and and he in fact literally was an uncontested imperial autocrat who who made every significant decision about how New York was evolving from being a nineteenth century city to being a twentieth century city, and he baked his racism really into the infrastructure of New York in ways that we're still contending yeah. with. It's uh, it's hard to fathom that level of power. 
from this shadow figure who was able to maintain it for so long with such a heavy hand. Um, there is that great, there's, a, I need to read this book. I haven't read it, but Robert Caro wrote a whole book about this, right? Ken yeah. Burns like did a whole chapter in his, his New York. The New York um, documentary. Yeah, the, the New York the documentary. documentary was, uh, it's Rick Burns, I think, um, directed that one. That, uh, but that, that was my first encounter uh-huh. with, with, with him, with this idea that there was a person who was that powerful, who was never elected yeah. um, and who did so much damage. Um, a lot of good too. He was a real visionary, but but an enormous amount of very dark damage. And the and the thing is, like, you know, um, <laughs> it makes my film sound like a documentary, which is absolutely yeah. not. Uh, in the sense that it's first and foremost a, a you know an old fashioned movie. It's a it's a it's a detective movie. It has a it has um, a a guy with Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder at the center of it and it, it's got like jazz clubs and you know it's this drift it's a drift yeah. in in that period in much the same way that la confidential or something like that is an atmospheric kind of um experience but i've always thought that i've always thought that that noir films um when they're serious they do something really positive which is they it's, they don't just acknowledge the shadow in American life. They they dig into it. They basically say there's a, there's things going on mm-hmm. under the surface of what we call the American narrative that are that if we're not paying attention to them, they're doing us real harm, like really serious harm. Yeah, and there's a there's a disorientation with that with that trope, like with that narrative arc in that, in that you, you, the, the movie is always um, kind of ahead of the audience in terms of what the audience knows. Way so ahead. You, you're, yeah. you're never sure, like, I've heard you talk about this, but like, you know, Chinatown is obviously the most incredible example of this where you literally don't know what's happening. At in all. the movie until the very end. No, and- But and, you don't care, because you're just also, in it, for it. it. Yeah, so they have to, to work, they have to be really good. I mean, yeah. I, it's a, a hard, a weird thing to say because it's like a good movie has to be a good movie. Of course it does, but it but it does have to. It's very particular because, in some ways, the point of noir. Maureen Dowd in the New York Times wrote a really great thing about this recently. Uh, is that is that it, it? You have to have the humility to know that the unknowability of the moment you're living in. You you do not know. You think you know what's mm-hmm. going on, and you don't actually know what's going on. It's why that O.J. Simpson documentary was pretty amazing because to me, we were young, but we lived through it and we had opinions, right? And to me, what watching that documentary did to me talk about ego, I could see my own ego. I could hear my own ego from when I was 20-something years old having all kinds of opinions about those events and the certainty that he was going to get convicted and all this stuff. And when you watch the film, you're like, "What what a moron I was to think that I even understood two out of the six levels of what was going on here. Um, like the social tectonic plates the, that were shifting exactly. that led to the inevitability of something like that happening. Exactly, yeah. like, like, and the, the, the episode in that that was dedicated to the history of the relationship between the LAPD and the African-American community alone was so humbling mm-hmm. because you're like, if you didn't know this, if you didn't know the depth of this, if you knew this, you'd have understood that there was no way he was getting convicted. But if you don't know this, you sat there and with your opinions, 
thinking that you had any idea, any real basis for understanding what was going on. Yeah. And, and that unknowability, that idea that's very difficult when you think about it, when you open the paper and you see what's going on and you think you know what's going on, you have an opinion. You just can't help it. Like, but, but pausing and going, I, you know, at what, at what point do you say, well, we know enough to act, but, but we can't really know everything that's going on. It's a very, it's a very profound thing. And I think that um, these films, part of the fun of really good noir films is that you get hypnotized. They, they, they force you to experience that un- inability to understand what's happening. Right. And, and yet they don't alienate you because they're sexy. Mm-hmm. And I really mean that word, mm-hmm. like they're sexy, like, like LA Confidential is sexy. Chinatown is sexy. The Big Sleep is sexy. Yeah. And what they do is they, that, that they flick, you, you go through some portal and you just go, oh, wow, this is wild. Like I'm through, I'm through the screen. I'm into the world. It's compelling. The music's great. There's things about it. They work this kind of, you get into actually like an aesthetic pleasure of listening to language and watching people and seeing clothes. But then slowly what they do is remind you, you don't know what's going on. Mm. And in this country, no matter what anybody tells you, there's dark shit going on. And not knowing that it's going on puts you in danger, like in big yeah. danger. And I think that's pretty healthy actually. Yeah, and and also clearly has its parallels as to what's going on culturally and politically right now. But I think, you know, I feel a little bit naked right now because I haven't seen the movie. Yeah. And uh, this whole thing came together last night. You'll come night. tomorrow night. And as like a perfectionist who, uh, who prides himself on his preparation and who's somebody who's very detail oriented. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm going to have like a, a, a teretic tick here because I, because I don't quite know what I'm talking about, but I do know enough about the, um, the noir genre in general. And I, and I certainly read up on, on this movie. Um, it's, one of the reasons why we love this genre is that it's treating us like adults. It's, mm-hmm. it's asking a lot of us, but we're welcoming that. And it's refreshing, especially in our high fructose corn syrup, you know, kind of entertainment where we're being spoon fed all of this stuff. It's so nice to sit in a theater and, and be challenged in that way. And I think that there's a real um, demand for that. Like, it's almost like we're, we're starving for it, at least in, in the movie theater. I mean, we're getting a lot of it in the streaming services right now. Like there's tons of amazing projects that are getting made. Yeah. Um, but I think it speaks to a larger kind of cultural thing. Like I've noticed that that, you know, you're someone who who who, you know, feels strongly about your your private life and you're not one to go out and do all the talk shows and all that kind of stuff. But but you've really embraced in the in the kind of press junket with this movie, you've embraced the podcast format. You've done a lot of the big shows. And I think it's well suited to you because it provides space to have a nuanced, mature adult mm-hmm. conversation about the things that 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 you care about. Um, and I think that that is, you know, part and parcel uh, is reflected in the kind of movies that that you like to make, and certainly this movie. Well, thanks. I mean, here's an interesting thing, though. I don't think it's a bad thing that you haven't seen the film, and maybe you'll come with our friends tomorrow night, um, and then we can talk about it more, but. I actually think it's kind of it's nice in a funny way today because we're recording this the day that they're putting yeah, the film is, out. Today's opening day, and and only because just knowing what I know about your own work 
and story. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting to talk about it a little bit like this, but then, but not worry about what the film's about per se, or even the process in making it, because I've been talking about that a, f- a fair amount, right? Uh-huh. What's, what's more interesting today is a uh, walk in and you've got like David Lynch catching the big fish, which uh-huh. I love, and Ego is the Enemy, which I haven't read. What I think is really fascinating is literally what I'm going through today that is different from any of these other conversations. And that I think, I think connects more back to things that I'm really interested in about your own, uh, let's call it like tipping point moment of feeling like I need to prior, I mean, I need to shift my priorities. Mm-hmm. Let's, let, if, if I go real base on that, I need to get fit or, but just really like, I got to shift my priorities is that the funny thing is, is I probably have not ever, uh, I, I haven't, I've threw myself into this as much as anything I've done on a creative yeah. level by simple virtue. The fact that I wrote, I wrote, I wrote it, produced it, directed it, raised all the fun money for it. Um, it's 20 years in the making. Yeah. It's a long, a long gestation on this one. Right. And I really, and I really couldn't get it out of my head. It was not, it was really not at a certain point about like the ego of, I want to play this role. It really was, it started to become for me, about things that I, I wanted to get across, that I started feeling actually the very best feeling that you get about a thing, which is like, it, it's, and this I have talked about, but it's the Joseph Campbell transparency effect. It's like this, the, people will be able to see themselves in this. They will be uh-huh. able to see us in this. They'll be reminded, they'll be able to see echoes of the now, but also like truths about the past and how we got where we are and and even just on a personal level, reconnect with empathy, which is, I think, really, really important right now. Um, but mostly I, ju- it, mostly I just wanted to, I, I get stubborn about not completing a thing mm-hmm. and I really wanted to complete it. And so I did. And so I've thrown myself out there to talk about it right. like way more than I generally I know. do or want to because I really do um, think it's better for people to figure stuff out on their own. Mm-hmm. However, here's the really interesting thing today, which is, I kind of was intimating this to you in the kitchen, but the funny thing is, is for all the, every form of cultivation, we didn't have, there's, it's not a ton of financial support behind putting it out. Uh-huh. They've done a good job, but it's just not the kind of film that, you, if, if you throw a hundred million dollars in marketing in a film like this, you're going to lose 50 million bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just the way it is. So I don't expect that. So I've tried to lean into it. But what's really interesting is I know for sure already today that it's not going to blow the doors off. It's not going to be some, it's not only not going to be some record weekend. Mm-hmm. It's not those kinds of things. It'll be soft. Like it'll be, it'll be less than, than people hoped it would do in an opening weekend, uh-huh. right? So this is what we're talking about is, it's, to, to me, in almost every framework, it's not only not relevant to what I was trying to do when I did it, but I actually know now from experience on film specifically, that the very best things I've done, and I mean literally, the stuff I've been nominated for Oscars for, the stuff that I haven't, but that people will, almost ubiquitously call 
cultural touchstones like Fight Club right. or American History X or the 25th Hour or none of which got any awards or anything like that, but are generally the first things named yeah, if people course. say these things, right? Every single one of those. You've been down this road many times. When I say down this road, what I mean is a, a, a considered yeah. a financial failure in the initial assessment of the matrix of like measuring things by the amount of right. initial box office they do, right? But so, not by the main metric or the most important metric, which is, did we do what we set out to do? Yes. Did we say what we wanted to say? Yes. Are we, the team that created this thing, satisfied that we accomplished what we you know, set out to Absolutely. do? Absolutely. But what I'm saying is what's fascinating to walk in and see this book is I, I have been through it. Like I've been through it. I've, I've actually experienced the very rare satisfaction of going through the feeling of disappointment. Like when Fight Club came out, we all thought we made a, right. a ass kicker of a film. Which you did. Right, but it came out and everybody felt stung. Everybody felt stung by that. It's so hard to, to believe that that was the case. Yeah. But I know it was like booed in but Venice, it, it was right? booed in Venice, but also yeah. it, just, it just, you know, it, the, the budget of the film was like 68 million bucks. And I think it's total box office in the US was under 40, which means the studio took home 20. So you're, you're into like deep in the red, yeah. not like partially in the red, like deep in the red, right? That was the era when, not to get business wonky, but the studios still owned the DVDs and the DVDs on Fight Club actually made, in my understanding, ended up making it sort of a profitable enterprise. But it's still, it was still like, wow, yeah, wow. Like we felt, the kind of heat we felt from the people who loved it was like a once in a career kind of, it was like that feeling of like, people get it, they love it. They're, they feel so connected to it, the level of passion. I mean, that from, movie, you know, if you're Gen X, if you're a Gen X male, I mean, that movie was transcendent. It's one I mean, of- There are few movies I go back and watch every single year. And it's, it's, right. it's one of the most impactful movies I've ever seen in terms of like what I connect with emotionally. And- in my opinion, it comes, it, it, and it takes you to a positive place. Yeah. It takes you through the sexiness of nihilism, but back out to where he grabs, the, he, he rejects that, he grabs the girl's hand and he says, let's, let's like, let's try this a healthier way. Right. You know what but I mean? But there, there's definitely an embrace of chaos and anarchy. Sure, sure. <laughs> On the way, I think, yeah. to saving Elaine from the uh -huh. church and, and running, you know, it's, uh -huh. this, it's the same as the end of The Graduate. I really believe that. Yeah. But, the, but, but my point is, we went through that, we felt stung, we came out the backside of it. And but you I, knew that was gonna happen going. You, no, we didn't. You no, didn't? we didn't, we felt, we but felt. But didn't Brad say to you, like, people he aren't gonna did, like this. did, but, but the, you can't, like, this is what I mean about ego, you you still go like, God, we, we thought we made a hit movie, you know uh -huh. what I mean? We thought we made a hit movie, and, the t and it's sort of like in some matrix, it's not even the matrix that we care about, the, that matrix tagging it as a disappointment mm -hmm. reverberates out, it hits you in the head, and you go, God, like, like you question yourself. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't. Yeah, that sucks. Like you feel bad about something that in your heart you feel good about, right? Uh -huh. And I think, um, but my point is that even having been through it, when we talk about like the ego being one of the most pernicious addictions, it's like I've been through it multiple times, like multiple times. You know what I mean? And this film that I've made. It's it's as good as anything I've done. Like just full stop. I know it is. And I also, you know, I've had people. Michael Eric Dyson. He's a sociologist at Georgetown. He just wrote a fucking essay on it. 
that hit me out of the blue. I was crying yeah. when I read that it. That was I, the Esquire piece, yeah, right? It's, it's an, an incredible article. It, it's, ama- it's And it's partially about mm. the film, but it's also partially about what it inspired in him to think about, mm-hmm. about race in America. And Ken Burns wrote this essay yeah. about it that had me, I was, I was on the floor. He's a hero of mine. And I'm like, there's this whole side of me right now that's like, he, I did what he I couldn't said. have praised the movie more highly no, than he did in that no. medium article. Yeah. And I and I and what and it, and there's a big part of me that's like it's literally like Chinatown. It's like the the psychic <laughs> yeah. part of the Jake gets in my house is in my head is saying is saying how much is enough? Like how much more do you need? Mm-hmm. Like what more could you want? And the answer, the best part of me is for sure nothing. Like that's it. That's what you're going for. You're going for activation pleasure and activation and is that happening it's happening i can feel it i can see it and this will find its level and people will get to it and all these things but on a day when the distribution head at warner brothers is calling you up and saying it's going to be a little softer than we want despite our best efforts Mm -hmm. and your brain just slams you and i don't mean like goes yeah okay but you know hanging you know we got to hang in there you're saying all these things like it literally becomes like a teoretic conversation right. you can you're saying these things and you the there's a voice that goes but yeah well we're playing we're we, this plays out on a longer horizon this is like but da- still there's Daniel a little, Kahneman a little residue it, there's a residue from that right but this is what's but, interesting to me this is what's totally fascinating to me is it's not a residue it's a big fucking mm. loud frustrated side of your head that is the ego and goes Shit, I, I, I wanted, I wanted, Af- I wanted everyone else's version of of what we want to be fulfilled too. I mean, there's something refreshingly human about that because the narrative that that circles around you is somebody who's who's you know who's kept. Um, the press at arm's length, who's had their brush ups with, you know, kind of sketchy narratives swirling around things yeah. that may or may not have happened, and who's really carved out a private life. Um, and with that comes the inference or the assumption like, well, this guy just doesn't give a fuck about what anybody <laughs> says about him. You know, right. he's just doing his thing. And like, that's cool. And that's like a superpower that I wish that I could have. And so when I'm scrolling or whatever, looking at looking for feedback, like I feel weak, you know what I mean? I feel like yeah. my ego has the better of me. And I think that speaks to the whole um, kind of Tourette's thing, right? Because Tourette's, what is Tourette's but a, a very severe example of what we all kind of harbor, which is this war inside of ourselves yeah. between our, our better instincts and the behavior that we actually manifest in the world. Yeah, and what, what, what I'm kind of fascinated about is um, it'll, you know, I, 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 I'm a big believer in that sort of this too shall pass thing. You, you can let, that's like Dharma, right? That's mm-hmm. you, you can let, you can watch your, your base, your base, inst- your base impulses and desires just go like hit, like, it's like someone hit a guitar string really hard and it's just going, you know, but it's gonna it's gonna settle down. Uh-huh. It's gonna settle down, and then the work you're doing, your life, like all these things go, and actually the long term steadiness of the thing you've made itself 
and its quality and all these things. It'll be out there. Yeah, we'll find its level. Yeah, well, everything will find its level. And in many cases, you will be, re you can have faith that like, yeah, it's going to get to that place that is ultimately the best thing also, um, which is just the, the quality of the thing will hold itself up uh -huh. and it will be all good. But um, what's kind of fascinating is to, at one point today, I was kind of floating along, looking at the light, looking at the hills, and I was sort of thinking, well, this was an interesting experiment in, I cared a lot, right? I put like more of myself into this that, you know, on multiple levels, I wasn't just an actor mm -hmm. working for a great director mm -hmm. or whatever, I did it. So then I went out and said, well, I have to do ev the, the last full measure of trying to engage in the, uh, the, a wide net of the very people who I know like substance, who like long form conversations, who like rich meals. And by the way, a lot of the cheap ones too. And the thing is, you come to this thing, you go, well, I didn't really do anything. <laughs> you go, <laughs> you, you know, you go, wow. So it like, it's so, moving the needle at all. Yeah, it doesn't move the needle at all. And this, we were kind of talking about this too in the kitchen is in the world we're in, it's like, you know, Henry Louis Gates Jr., like who was like one of the rising rock stars of history and academia when I was in college and is like one of our, our elders, you know, uh -huh. one of our great, he wrote a beautiful thing about it today, right? And I saw like, you know, people, Warner Brothers, did you see this thing and retweet this and do this and these things? And you just go, it's not doing anything. <laughs> it's not doing anything, man. It feels good. It's like, but it's like, it talk about pissing in the wind. I think, the, I think, I think some of this stuff is doing something. You know, you did Rogan yesterday. Like yeah. millions of people watch that. Like it's, it's, I mean, you're doing everything that you can and that's a demonstration of how much you care. And I think that, and, and I'm finding you to be like, I had this thing like, is he gonna be all like walled off and like not wanting to talk? And it's like, that's not the experience that I'm having at all. No. And that's not the experience I'm getting when I'm, I tuned into those other shows as well. Mostly, I've said this many, many times. It was not an insincere uh, statement. I'm not like, I don't think most people who know me think that um, aloofness is my, mm. is my natural state, right? I, I'm pretty engaged. But I, but my reticence around like public discourse is actually, I just really honestly think it, it screws with the quality yeah. of the experience that people have when they go in to see yeah. the kind of work I do. It's like, I don't think, like, I know Daniel Day-Lewis a little bit. I know Sean Penn a little bit, but Daniel's a better example because he's like the warrior monk in our tribe of thespians, he's the true like warrior monk. And I'm by that, I mean, he's like in, you have no idea, we, no one knows where he is. He's right. off in the cave, he's doing anything. <laughs> His whole like- he be doing anything For, right for such now. a long time, yeah. you know, and, and he's a, a really terrific person. He's a fascinating person, he's all these things, but he descends off the mountain and delivers these lightning bolts. To me, I am in, I am just flattened by his, performances, mm -hmm. they are so visceral and so vital and deep, just mm -hmm. deep as shit. And, but that is enhanced by the fact that I don't see him and hear him. Yeah. And he goes away for a long, long time. And when he brings it back down, 
it's got like the level of excitement. It, it it's just incredible. but also anything I held from before is atomized. It's gone. It's long gone. And there's just the shock mm. of the reincarnation. It literally like he's dead and gone, and then it's reincarnation mm-hmm. into yet another like like powerful thing, right? And it's that's becoming amazing. it's it's becoming increasingly more and more rare. The level of discipline that you have to have with the with the kind of exposure that's available to everybody now requires you, you know a, a sense of self that is increasingly more and more difficult. I think, like you know, I know you've you've talked about like you know Dylan and Bowie and 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 even like Radiohead, you know, to is probably a decent example of mm-hmm. that. Like they, you know, like they're not when when you're purposely removing yourself from the public eye and you go out and you do your thing and you come back like that's a that's a fucking cool thing yes. man yeah it, um what's interesting that what i'm interested in uh really specifically is to me this whole the, the process of trying to to and some of it i, I i'm to, being totally candid I didn't feel I had any choice in this case. I'd love to let it fly and let it be. I'd be more okay. In a way, it would sting less to me if I hadn't made such an effort. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Like the, the stingy part of the brain that's like, God damn, I did all this stuff and is, is it really even doing anything? Um, the, the drive for me was not even the care of the thing itself because the thing itself is like a child you think you're once you've put it out it's on its own mm-hmm. path but it's more that i did en- i engaged people wonderful people who backed me in taking some risk and putting some shekels they put their money mm-hmm. alongside warner in this and i like really appreciate it right like i don't have any right to that from anybody there's no nothing about my work that to me automatically validates that someone should should put you know like a lot of money into backing me doing this thing. So my view is sort of like, I owe these allies of mine literally everything I've got, everything I've got to try to make, a, make it so they can at least get a hold on it. Ironically, these are the type of people who were like, you did because the thing is like beyond what we could have hoped. Mm, Honestly, that's yeah. the response I've gotten. It doesn't, and I feel good about that. But at the same time, I, I want to try to do right by them on in the business of it all and and i don't um the thing the funny thing is is it 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 burns you down it just does there's no two ways about it and this is where i get which part the the all this talking about it or the yeah no no, not just talking about it just the track that it's a lot of travel it's a lot of um it it's just a lot it's it's not emotional stress but it's just when when you do anything and this is, I am, I am really interested in asking you a question, which is you get to this point where you're sort of like, wow, I'm not doing, I'm not doing any of the things that I know are healthy for me. Mm. Like I, I am not an uninformed person about like diet. I am not, I surf. I have lots and lots. I used to, I rode competitively in college. Uh-huh. I've been an athlete. I've been, I've trained. I've gotten in really great shape. I've starved myself. I've gotten back down to yeah. like, 137 to do the painted veil. Ran the New York Marathon. Ran the New York Marathon. Yeah, yeah. I've done I've done a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. So I I I actually have in me a certain measure of what I'd call the muscle memory of of health and discipline, right? And when you get into this mode where you're grinding, 
up in here, like tapping my forehead, you know, it's amazing. I am so amazed at how fast the inertia effect, the mind just takes you to, um, you get into, it's not even oppositional. You just don't, the speed with which discipline around what you eat and how much you move your body falls away in the face of, let's call it stress. I don't mean emotional stress, but just yeah. the clinical stress of doing some, pursuing something at a high, in a high gear, right? And number one, you talk about the argument with the head, the amount of self-chastising I do on a daily basis mm -hmm. would be so much more easily resolved by just waking up and doing yoga for 40 minutes or grabbing my board and going out and paddling for 30 minutes and going into the exact day that I'm going to have anyway, it would be so much more easily resolved by fasting or doing a green juice cleanse right. while I'm doing this instead of drinking three fucking coffees yeah. a day to get myself through it. And I'm super curious in your, cause I've been hypnotized out of eating sugar, had that work for like a year, year and a half, fallen off of it, you know, gotten, but to me, the beta, the swings, the volatility on it is getting, I'm 50 now. Yeah. My level of frustration with the volatility is maxing out. Yeah. Like I really, really coming out the backside of this, especially feeling like I'm feeling today, which is like deep satisfaction, short-term frustration. I'm like, I do not want to tip right now, particularly, I do not want to tip over into sort of a, a sigh and more indulgence of negative pattern ill health. Yeah, I really, really right now want to go out the back of this into like a new level of resolve. And I'm super curious, like I'm sure you've talked about it, but I'm super curious for you what the tricks are of like sustained discipline mm -hmm. through phases. Like when you're, like, a race is like a movie for me. It's super easy to, if you've got goal oriented things, that's the best. You can always like, set yourself like, I got to get ready right. for this film or I got to get ready for this goal. But I'm at the point in my life where I don't want to do that many films. I don't, I don't want to do a film a year that I have to get in shape for, right? I want to like, I want to have a steady state discipline. I'm super curious. Do you go through still? Like oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the first thing I would say to you is, is, is stop chastising yourself and be a little bit more gentle on yourself because you're, in this short-term window where you're exerting a tremendous amount of will on the world for something that you care deeply about. Your values, like it, I look at it like you have, you have different values that are competing with each other right now for your attention and resources. And your priority at the moment is getting the word about, out about this movie that you worked so hard on, that you care so deeply about, and trying to foment interest in getting other people to care about it in the way that you do. There is a, uh, there's an expiration date on this phase that you're going through. And I think just to begin with, just recognizing that you're in a heightened period at the moment and, and being okay with the fact that you're not gonna be in this super balanced state while you, while you go through this in the same way that you would think about 
pushing other things aside or, or marginalizing other values because you're training for a marathon or you're in production on a movie. Like those are where you have to choose which value is gonna take precedence in this equation. But I think, in, and I would say to you that this, there's this illusion that we're all striving for this perfect balance in our life. And I think it's setting people up, myself included, to feel like we're falling short or disappointing ourselves and others because we can't meet that. Like, you know, what's your morning routine and what time mm -hmm. are you waking up? And like, are you doing these 20 things in the morning so that you can be your best self when you navigate the world and all the other, you know, obligations that you have to meet throughout the day? And I've just found for myself that I can't necessarily meet that on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's been a journey to just being okay with that and, and looking at a couple of the things that I can do or what is, um, completely unnegotiable, non-negotiable that you're gonna do no matter what is happening? Like, what is it that you feel stro so strongly about that actually is really crucial to your, to your self-care that, um, that you're gonna create that protective boundary around? Like maybe it's getting out on the water and surfing for, you know, it doesn't have to be 30 minutes, what right. if it's 15 minutes or something that's actually doable? And for you was, was getting, was going vegan, one of those threshold things where you said, this has gotta be, essentially part of the fundamental. Yeah, I mean, I, I come, I, you know, I came into that first, um, you know, I have a long story of, of like addiction and recovery and went to rehab and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I kind of, I've, I've learned how to see certain things through the lens of like 12 step. Mm -hmm. And there's a rubric with that, that creates kind of a binary system that removes decision fatigue. Like, you're either drinking or doing drugs or you're sober, but you can't like drink it. You know, it's like, right. there's a, there's a, there is a iron curtain between those two things. And when 10 years later I had this, you know, brush with ill health and realized that I was once again facing another, you know, kind of threshold moment for myself, I approached diet and lifestyle with the same kind of rigor and, you know, binary perspective that 12 step offered, which, you know, I played around with a lot of diets and wasn't getting anywhere, but there's something about plant-based that not only when I tried it, like I just felt amazing, yeah. but in order to sustain it, I kind of leveraged the tools of 12-step to create a foundation as I started to learn how to do it. It's like, oh, well, you know, meat and dairy are just off the table, just like drugs and alcohol. Like mm -hmm. that made it very easy for me. And that was imperfect at first, but allowed me to kind of move forward with it as I learned how to like perfect it and make it sustainable. Um, and and that's something I've held, you know, I've, I've I've held that line for twelve years, but my relationship with like fitness and training and exercise, like I stay connected to it. But you know, there's a big difference between how I'm living now versus when I was training for these races, and it's like a job. You know, it's like being in production. You're just right. like twenty five hours a week on yeah. out on my bike or whatever. It's not a sustainable lifestyle. It's something that I can do for a period of time to achieve a certain goal, and then you have to rebound back. So that pendulum. You know, in my life, my pendulum's always swinging, and that that idea, that like fantasy of balance, is that you know that pendulum is always kind of right in the middle there, and I, it's not my life. That's Do not you, that's not the life of almost any high performer that I know. It's more about getting comfortable with those swings and understanding that in in the short term your life is out of balance, but when you telescope out, like over an extended period of time, you're making sure that the important things in your life are being attended to. Right. Do you? On a pure, on, in the matrix of just actual training and the value of the, on on top of like plant based eating, within because training and exercise and 
all of it are, are so good, not only for your, your heart health and, you know, everything else, but, but for your well-being, the, mm -hmm. the meditative quality, mm -hmm. the mind clearing quality of exercise and the state, you know, the mood state, the serotonin that comes from it, all the, yeah. all the good, you know, kind of keeping you even components of it. Do you, have you found that, let, let's say training for a race for you or an event is like, like doing a film and you might say, <clears throat> I, I don't actually want to do as much of this as I've done it in the past. So the spreads between those goal driven, you know, phases get wider, yeah, they, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you experienced though, that within, within the wider spreads between the highly motivated, you know, job like things, have you seen, have you ever gotten to a, a place where the baseline of what you're doing to sustain, not for, not for job related reasons or for, but almost just like for your mental well-being, your health has dipped like, you know, to not to zero, but almost to like where you're like, God, I'm almost back to yeah, to a hundred percent. Yeah, you know, and okay. then I'll and then I'll beat myself I up. Think a lot you know, of people are relentlessly. Happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, yeah. There's this idea. Like I go out and they're oh, how much did you run today? Fifty miles. I'm like, dude, you would laugh if you knew. Like, you know, like I've only worked out like twice this week. I think like it's you know it's at a pretty low boil at the mm -hmm. moment. And you know, if I had my druthers, I would be you know hitting it every single day. And that's that's not the reality of my situation because I'm making a conscious choice to invest my time elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like I wanted to spend several hours immersing myself in your world today before right. you came over here. So we could, you know, I could yeah. at least have some semblance yeah, yeah. of an intelligent conversation. Um, and, and, and so, you know, ordinarily I would have done something different this morning, but I'm like totally hundred percent okay with that. Yeah. And I think that's, that comes a little bit, I, I think um, maturity has helped that. Mm -hmm. um, whereas maybe several years ago, I would be holding myself to a standard that I couldn't sustain. Like I would just wake up at a ridiculous hour to get it in, and I and I would burn myself out. Mm -hmm. And and now it's like it's okay, man. You know, yeah. I'm not going to get to do everything you want to do every single day. Right. But what can I do? And what are the small little habits that I can cultivate to make sure that I'm not really losing, you know, touch with or contact with those important aspects of lifestyle. Yeah, it's the, 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 even as I'm listening to it and, you know, spinning on the patterns of things, it's just, it is, it's always wild, the, the dance between the, the struct, the, the way that structured mm -hmm. approach to time in life can bring um, actual richness, you know what I mean? It, it, it's not even just discipline and effectiveness. Like I think effectiveness is like in a way bullshit. It's like, it actually is like, if you just focus on quality of life, like some structure can mean that you actually are learning music and you actually are staying a little healthier and you're, you're learning new things because you're, you're making time like through teachers, you know what I mean? Like through by booking it, it literally or you know, and, and the structure can seem like anal and not like um, relaxed. Yeah. But the truth is, is that stru more structure in the time can make, can help you kind of wrangle yourself mm. into 
doing the things that you're actually really happy that you're learning and you're feeling good yeah. at the end of the day and your life feels good. But that's at odds with, it's just at odds with like pure presence, right? Or like the value of like kind of just being, allowing yourself to be, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And it, it's like, yeah, it's true. It's like you can overthink balance and stuff. But the, but the, the, uh, I find myself really admiring people who, who somehow achieve kind of like, um, they, they're minimizing the vol, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Cause I, yeah. cause I, I think, um, I think having sort of crossed a certain threshold where I've lost, you know, my mother died when she was 54 mm. and my really good friend and partner who I, I built a theater company with, he died at 56, it, you know, um, and you just kind of go like, like, you know, the consequence of negative behavior starts to speed up a little yeah. bit or you start to go, you know, you don't want to be eating. You don't want to be like 50 years old and eating no. a, a bunch you of can't dairy. Get, you can't get away with it anymore. And you don't want anyway. to be eating dairy. No. You don't want to be eating sugar. You don't want to be eating like, like casein protein and, and sugar. That's just like mm. rocket fuel for cancer. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's like, um, and every, and that's like a clinical fact. And, and, but so like people, I feel like people who somehow tighten, bring the, the, the you know, you, you can't be in the hyper gear all the time, right. but you don't want to go like, like down into um, letting hyper gear on something else rationalize like your health falling through the floor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a big kind of part of the sober journey too, because you come in as this you know, alcoholic, drug addict. And those are people who are, they've just, they have really high highs and really low lows. And there's, there's, that's part of the addiction. Like that's part of the craving. Can I get that high, that high? And like, what happens when I go that low? And there's like a, there's like an affinity for the drama that comes mm -hmm. with that as well. And what you have to learn over time is, is, is what it feels like to be in that middle place, or when that valence, you know, is 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 shrunk, so that you're in a more um, compact range, and that's uncomfortable too, because you're like, if you, if you, you know, if you, if you want that high high, then you have to have that low low. You can't have one without the other, yeah. right? And what does it feel like to navigate life where you're just keeping it a little bit more in check? And that's hard. Yeah. It's funny. I I have multiple friends. I have friends who are in recovery, who I think. Um, <laughs> it's really funny. Like I I think, in some ways, I there are friends of mine who are in recovery who I think, are in many ways heading into middle life in a better place, than, than some of us who haven't mm. gone through recovery, because it's almost like the, the experience of buying out younger, got them to like understand that middle band better. And there's ways in which I, I, I don't envy it because a lot of people die too. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like, yeah. you can't like, and I know a lot of people who died, yeah. like who didn't get through that, um, which is brutal. Like yeah. it, it's, it's like, you just like. You were, uh, you were, uh, you were friends with Phil, right? Phil Hoffman. Yeah, I yeah. was, I was. I was friends with Phil, but I was, I was more like colleagues of Phil. I mean, we were like, he, I was not like, he wasn't one of like my 
my best and closest mm. pals, but we came up in the same period together and um and we had a um we had a a a year where we did like two films back to back. The second one was the one we did with Spike Lee, who right. was a, who was a big figure for both of us um just in terms of an inspiration yeah. someone we both really looked up to and i think like i bond i kind of bonded with him more on that he was always to me someone and especially he he was someone who was like you wanted like everybody admired him so much all of us who came up in new york in that era like mark ruffalo and bobby cannavale and even many of us you know, Phil was, he was, he, the, he was the guy. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. was like, he really was, he was like one of those people you admired so much that he, he was like, it's so ironic, but he was like the guy in, it, it's like in high school, it's like the jock or whatever, but, and Phil was the furthest thing from that, yeah. but he was like the guy you wanted his approval. Yeah. You know, you wanted yeah. his like, you, you wanted to be in the club of what Phil. And would he give it out? Would, uh, grudgingly, grudgingly, uh-huh. and I and I think that no, but I think it, which when made I it all the more special. Little, yeah, when, when, I, when I got to him a little, I think I realized like you realize that sometimes like what you're feeling off a person doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with mm. what, what what they're going through, or maybe. But he didn't suffer fools. Like he really uh, and I, some of my really good friends were super super good friends with him, and um, and he definitely didn't suffer fools which is part of why you wanted the affirmation from him special. But we did, we did these two films. And when we did the Spike Lee film together, I, we, we, it was kind of the dream. We rehearsed it like a play. And I felt, um, I felt it was, it was one of those things that was meaningful to both of us. And we bonded a little bit over the specialness of that. And then we were both doing plays kind of next door to each other for the rest of that year. So, it was, it was, um, that was kind of like wow. the, no, but, but it's, you know, it's unfathomable to me that, mm. that it, it, not even about being friends. It's just unfathomable to me that, that like we lost him. He's not here. Yeah. It, it's, it's, um, it, 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 it kills me. And, uh, uh, and that said from the point of view of him not having been one of my best friends, I just, I can't believe mm. that, you know, you, that like the, the scale of the loss is really bad. And I, yeah. and I, I know many others also who, right, like you that. know, who, we all do. I mean, so it's not like you can't like, rom- obviously romancing, romancing addiction is, <laughs> that's its own cult. You know what I mean? I mean, that's its own, like, like there's, there's too much of that. And I think the truth of it is it's really, there's a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of people totally lost to it that, um, but I do think that I know a lot of people in, in a weird way I admire the, uh, I admire where they got to through it, you know, and in some ways I, 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 probably they would say don't because I'm still an addict yeah, and the danger that's there is lurks or whatever. Yeah. But sometimes I, I look at him like, wow, the, the, there's a discipline there that I feel like I'm, it's, it's like, it's not heroin, but I, but I feel like it, your mind, when you feel like you're not mastering your your balances. Um, There's a saying um, in 12-step, like grateful alcoholic or grateful addict. And for a long time, I couldn't understand what that meant. But, but you know, I've learned to 
really get that. And what it basically what it means is like, listen, you have this affliction and the problem is so manifest that you're forced to confront it. And as a result of that, you're given these tools and a community of people who want to support you. And you learn how to uh, basically be vulnerable to develop this capacity um, for compassion and self-inquiry and all of these things that ultimately, if you lean into them and actually you know, make use of them and avail yourself of, of their power, um, have this incredible potential to, to improve your lives, improve lives and, and help other people improve lives. And, and I think, you know, when you see, when you see those people out in the world, like, you know, there's a lot of people who are just living their lives reactively, who don't spend a lot of time on self-inquiry or self-improvement. And, and so, you know, yeah, I would consider myself one of those grateful people for, for, you know, short of that, I don't know that I would, you know, first of all, be alive, but secondly, be interested in these things that have helped me and so many other people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and it, and it's also like, um, it's a, it, it's like this, the ebb and the flow of like the desire to like, contribute or let's just call it put out versus like to take the time to just be quiet mm. and inboard you know i i kind of feel i don't know if you feel this way but i feel like one of the downsides that's less discussed of of all this high speed thing is that a lot in a lot of ways what that's really pernicious about this about these platforms about this social media all of it is it, in a lot of ways what it does is it it goes like this constantly on the ego. Uh -huh. And it, but it, what it really says is, it says, there's a way for you to make your life matter. All you have to do is tell people about it all the time. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, yeah. and, and by telling, when you tell people about it and they give you this little hit of affirmation, you go, ooh, that was, that, you know, mm. like my life matters, right? But, but. Until it, that one day that you say the thing that isn't quite right and, and everyone then, decides to right, cancel you. Yeah. <laughs> but the, but the, but what's fascinating to me or horrifying is sort of that that it it creates like it turns everybody into a fast food purveyor, right? Mm. It, it's like yes, there's people writing pretty profound things on some of these things, but ultimately, I think that it's part of an addiction to the, to to the idea that if I'm not putting out, if I'm not putting out. Like if I'm not, telling, you don't exist, and you yeah. Don't if matter. I'm not telling my story, I'm not here, mm. and 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 it's like I can't help wondering: is it like eradicating the room people are making in their lives to just like be quiet, like just be quiet? And, I think it is without a and, doubt, and, and I've and, noticed it in my own life, and not and not actually just scroll yeah. the 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 bite sized things, but like actually read like one of these many things. You know, the amount of friggin' books that are in my house that I. I really want to read yeah. that I'd be so much happier to have read than anything in a freaking scroll. But it's so much easier to scroll. Uh, and I you know. have to, it's I mean, back stuff. to discipline, like you really have to erect these boundaries and exert a level of discipline just to, just to be bored, just to be able to like, give yourself a little bit of uh, a refractory period, you know, in yeah. between thoughts. And I don't know where that's going because it's, it's getting harder and harder. Yeah, it is. I and mean, and um, that and I think that's going to denigrate 
the the quality of creative output ultimately how could it not yeah i find myself it's sort of like jack white's song um you know you're sitting in your little room you're trying to do uh, something good but if you do something good <laughs> you're gonna need a bigger room you know what i mean like uh, and then you'll have a bigger room and you might not know what to do and you'll sit around try i can't remember the line you sit around wondering how you got started back in, in your little room place. and it, yeah and it's like that could be why younger people produce like vital stuff. I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I, well, there's always a reaction. Yeah. You know, um, but, um, but I think uh, there's actually Václav Havel, the, the Czech president. Yeah. It's, it's like a hidden little thing in his essays, but he has this essay called second wind. That's basically kind of about how difficult it is to, to stop and, and in, you know, take things on again and risk risk not a, a another phase of doing of creating or whatever that does not replicate what you've been doing. Yeah, um, and that it's that it's like the biggest dare, but that the uh, that everything else is essentially like you're just churning the you're churning the same yeah, you're, thing you're, you've already made. Exactly. You're perpetuating what you already know works. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you talk about this. I mean, this is, you know, classic, the classic Dylan example, Bowie again, like yeah. these people who have the courage and the tenacity to basically when the stakes are super high, just pivot completely. And it's something your dad did in his career, right? He did. Yeah. 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 He's, he was a, a, he's got a great tapestry, you know, like I think, or I don't even know what the right analogy is, but I definitely like the idea of looking, the idea of being older and looking back and going, you know, I, I, for all intents and purposes, like, you know, charge myself off doing the same thing mm. because it, because people told me I was good at it. That's, that's pretty depressing, actually. Like, if you imagine being old and looking back and going, do I want like affirmation over and over and over and over and over again for one or two things that I figured out? Or would I like to look back and go, yeah, I, 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 I have a rich, I have a rich, you know, mm. landscape of experiences that are more, um, you know, which, which one would you envy more? If you were sitting at 50 and you said, I can live to a hundred, this is what I'd like to look back on. Nobody would choose. I mean, yeah, but I mean, when maybe, I, maybe when some I, people would, when maybe I look at your career though, I mean, even if you didn't act at all and make movies, like you, you have like like more on your plate than most people that I meet. I mean, you're involved in all these philanthropic efforts, these environmental concerns. You've got tech companies that you're working with. I mean, you you have your hands in like a lot of shit. Yeah. Um, what's interesting though is that it, to the point though is yes, but that's not the same as, that's that's like the opposite of quiet. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Like, and at a certain point, one of the things I think is, is really wild is the is, is recognizing that once you set certain things in motion, unwinding them takes way longer than you Just tell yourself it's going to when you start. Mm. And the obligation to other people and sense of responsibility, the long tail on that is, is really long. Um, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to, it's a lot harder to, to give yourself any kind of real contemplative pause when you've stacked a lot of things because well, you can wind I, one thing down. Yeah. Because you can wind, I can finish this movie, I can put it out, I can say, I'm done with it, I don't want to talk about it anymore, go enjoy it. And 
um, you know, God bless. But that it doesn't, you know, that that wouldn't mean I'm like automatically like surfing and you know fasting every right. Day. That, like, that there's like, nothing else. Yeah, going there's on. a lot. Yeah. And so it's so it's like you you it takes a little bit to unwind things. So how do you make? I mean, you're getting. I'm, projecting, but I imagine you're on the receiving end of like a shitload of opportunities and things that you could say yes to. What is your rubric for what you decide to get get involved with? Like, how do you make those kind of decisions? Mm, right now, it's so much like nothing new. I mean, right now, mm. really like, like my determination is, is so strong not to take on anything. Um, it's just to see through the things I've been like the, this was a, this Huge was a output. determination to see it through though. Yeah. Like, I mean, I really believed in it, but I also just was like, I, I need, I want to see this through. Um, there's other things I'm engaged with. I'd rather see them through than add anything new, uh -huh. you know? Um, because also I think when, when, when kids come into the mix, it's just sort of like, right. The last thing you want to be doing is stacking some new thing that's pulling you uh, even more away, um, and uh, uh, so I'm I'm like not going to spin any new plates. Mm. So when people say what's next, you just bristle. No, no. Or do you it's, think it's about more, like what that? What is that pivot or that reinvent, more, that reinvention? Yeah, I, I. It's why I'm. I think what we should wrap on is. Yeah. Um, You'll come see the film, and I'm going to read your book. Okay. No, because I I am like way <laughs> in more... all your free time. No, no, no. I because I am completely that pivot. The pivot is exactly the pivot that I am like most interested in right now. I I am really interested in a a recovery of optimal health. Mm, I can help you with that. Yeah. Cool. Um, thanks for talking to me, man. Totally. That was super fun. Yeah. Uh, motherless Chris, Chris Blair has a few good ideas now and then. Does he? Oh, yeah, I know, right? He's yeah. got a lot of energy, that guy. I know. Sipping from a fire hose. God bless him. Yeah. Um, motherless Brooklyn, theaters everywhere. Definitely go check it out, as it will I. Um, and Edward's pretty easy to find if you want to hit him up on yep. the internet at Edward Norton on Twitter. Is that the best place? Yeah. Wherever you want, right? Until I turn Just it off. Just see the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool, man. How do you feel? Good, thanks a lot. Good, all right. Yeah, thanks, man. Peace. Plants. How about that? Edward Norton, people. That was Edward Norton. Pretty incredible. Uh, and I should mention that I did take Edward up on his invitation to attend a screening of the movie with a small group of his friends, uh, which was another <laughs> pretty amazing and uh, pinch me type moment. Uh, and the movie lives up to the hype. His performance is absolutely riveting, stunning. The cast is incredible. The execution is beautifully done. And it's just so smart and fun. Uh, I think we mentioned in the podcast that Ken Burns called it a modern masterpiece, and I may be biased, a biased fanboy, but I would second that description. So please check it out while it's still in theaters to support Edward, of course, but also to support this kind of grown-up cinema, which is a very welcome salve to our steady diet of superhero popcorn fare. For even more on Edward, check out the show notes on the episode page at richworld.com and let him know how this one landed for you by sharing your thoughts with him directly on Twitter at Edward Norton or on Instagram 
at Edward Norton Official. If you'd like to support our work here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new people discover this program. Tell your friends about your favorite episode, share the show on social media, hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Spotify, and Google. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I wanna thank everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing and editing the show. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. DK David Kahn for advertiser relationships. And as always, theme music by Analemma. Appreciate the love, you guys. And we'll see you back here next week with plant-powered ultra runner, Robbie Ballinger, who this year ran across the United States in 75 days. Here's a clip. Until then, be well. Peace, plants. Namaste. I think it all came down to like, I desperately wanted this. I wanted it for a lot of reasons. I wanted it, one, for the outreach, for the advocacy. It meant a lot to me to, to start being a force for positive change. And two, I was lost. I'd come out of 15 years more in the restaurant industry and it didn't feel like I wanted to do that anymore. I knew whatever I did next, I wanted it to be something that fed my soul. And moving my body does and pushing the limits of what I can do physically. So I just kept doubling down that this is what I had to do. I had to get this together. And a lot of it was just faith that it would come together. And again, going back to that mantra that my mom instilled in me. You can do anything you set your mind to. And I think that's something for important for people to understand is just because something's hard in the beginning doesn't mean it's always going to be. It's amazing what we're capable of. And I think a lot of what you have to do is not get overwhelmed by the larger task at hand, whatever it is, and just start chopping away little by little at whatever you're trying to achieve. Um, nobody gets to something huge overnight. It's going to take time. <laughs>